I'm Paul Teich, Principal Analyst with Tirius Research, and I'm sitting here talking with Tom Hunt, CEO of Windspring. Tom, how you doing? Paul, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, before we get really started uh, into Windspring's products, technology markets, uh, can you give us a compressed history of <laughs> what you're doing in the market? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, we started about 10 years ago solving problems in the automobile navigation market. If you think about maps, there's lots and lots of data. Uh, traditional compression, uh, the way it works is you compress data. When you need it, you decompress the entire data set and access it. Uh, with limited memory and limited compute power, that's a problem in cars. They couldn't run. And so in our case, we're not encumbered by that. We can compress data and decompress only that information that's requested. So we became very popular in that space. So Windspring, as a company, can you kind of talk about the, the split in your product line between local and remote? What, what's, what do you do in compression locally, taxonomy of your product line? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. We have two sets of products, connected and disconnected or unconnected products. Our unconnected products are completely self-contained. The data is local, the application is local, and everything happens on a local machine. In the connected world, whether it's machine to machine or Internet of Things, it requires two components. You have a device side, which is doing compression or encoding, and then it sends the reduced data over the air, and then on the server side that receives it, you have a component that uh, decodes that information, returning it to its normal form and handing it to the server. And the, the benefit there is that the server-side application or service doesn't need to know anything about what was done prior or at the device. And then second, on the protocol side, we have a second component that allows multiple protocols to communicate with one another and interoperate with one another. And that's simply a, a gateway or a server-side component. Looking at your compression, lossless and lossy compression first, and then there's a difference between general compression and kind of context-aware compression. First, you guys play in the lossless compression space where people can't lose bits, right? And then maybe describe kind of the philosophy of what what you do that gets you past the compression ratios of general purpose compression. Well, that's true. So we are a lossless compression company, uh, as you described. And if you look at the world of the Internet of Things, it's fundamentally different. So it required a different approach to data optimization or compression. First, um, you mentioned contextual context-aware compression. It's really important when, you're, when your data size is 100 bytes or 200 bytes and you're trying to send that, that you look at this differently than traditional compression software does. Um, I'll give you an example. A child tracking device or any device sending data uh, over the air may generate a geo tag that might be 150 bytes long. And we can compress that down to 5 or 10 bytes with our technique. If you were to use GZIP or a traditional compression technology to take that same 150 bytes, it's going to make that 150-byte message 
closer to 200 bytes. And it's because of the way it works. It compresses the data and then creates a reference to what it did to that data inside the payload. And because the payload is so small, the overhead is often great. In using traditional um, compression methods, you can get lossless, get about two to one to four to one compression ratios. Typically, maybe a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, but, um, but your compression ratios uh, tend to be a little bit higher than that. That's right. So in the um, Internet of Things space, we're seeing compression rates that can exceed 20 to, one, 20 to 1. And I mentioned earlier we try to look at this differently than traditional compression and comp traditional data. The first thing we do is notion that we call compaction. API looks at the data that's being presented and says, what can we do to better represent the data set before we pass it off to the encoder. In that step, we can typically save 2x or reduce it by 2x or 3x even. So an example of that might be you might have a, a JSON data set, in which case you have these key value pairs that are describing each element. But we can strip those out and replace those with references that we reproduce on the server side. And before we even hand it to the encoder, we've, we've taken significant amounts of data away. The second piece is we have mul multiple algorithms that we have at our disposal that we can apply based on the data that's coming to us. And these algorithms are very, very different in that they're very fast and very lightweight, meaning they, will, they run at speeds in excess of 15 gigabytes a second, and they take up less than 2K of memory to operate. To contrast that with something like gzip, gzip requires 400k. If you get a, a lightweight version of gzip, it takes 200k. That almost excludes it from the entire IoT community because the purpose of IoT is low-cost sensors and devices in the field that are going to last for long periods of time. And low-cost and high memory don't go together. So traditionally, uh, you have to look at this differently, and that's how we're able to do that. And then the final step in that is is we go through a, a third uh, piece that I call the conversion step. And it's a it's a conversion step because two things happen. One was we look at the protocol that's being used to send data from the device or sensor up to the server or gateway, and if that's a very chatty or or uh, a protocol that uses a lot of data it's defeating the purpose of the compression. And so we have to look at what can we do with that protocol to reduce its data consumption, which means reduce its data consumption, improve its battery performance, etc. And what we have found is we have several lightweight protocols that Windspring has created, and there are other existing protocols which are very efficient over the air. And we can utilize any of those at this conversion step, swap those out, because at the server side, the first thing that the server is going to have is our any-to-any -any protocol connector, which will take that protocol and convert it to whatever the server is expecting. And so, then and when you talk server, you're it, it, anything from a gateway to an actual server. It's a, it's a place that, that data is being aggregated. Right. That's right. So this, the, 
you, sometimes we get stuck in the old vernacular of client server, but in the IoT space, it's wherever that device or sensor is communicating. So at that point, this software exists. And then now we've compacted, we've compressed, and we've gone through the first step of conversion. The second step is there's lots of new networks in the marketplace today. Um, you see your traditional LTE, you're seeing narrowband IoT, you're seeing LoRaWAN, you're seeing variations of, of LTE for uh, IoT, and all of them are now coming at a, at a much more aggressive price, partly to, to address the 2G sunset issue. And, uh, and when they're coming in at these prices, there are restrictions on these networks. And so we built in a traffic layer that basically said, what are the traffic restrictions of the network you're using? So that we can automatically adjust the payload to that network. And if you're a normal enterprise, you're going to be speaking over multiple networks with multiple protocols and multiple devices. You don't want to have to repurpose your code for every single device. We have a simple interface that takes care of that last piece of conversion for you. To developers, IoT, especially industrial IoT developers, um, who are looking at building a new solution, um, part of the decision is going to be kind of a make versus buy. Right, uh, do it yourself versus find it from someone else, and and so that what are the pitfalls? You know, the, the top two or three things that developers are going to run into as they're if, if they decide to try and do this themselves. Right. Well, Paul, we run into this one every day. Most of our customers start off by doing something themselves, and then coming back after the after the fact saying. It didn't work for a number of reasons. And there's really three reasons why you run into problems. One, trying to do compression on IoT devices in a very constrained area is difficult. You don't have that reference that you might in a, in a PC or a server environment where there's a bunch of open source tools available to you. I can't, I can't use Python libraries? No, you can, <laughs> you can, you can try. Uh, we we had a, an interesting discussion with one of the telco operators recently, and we imagined that we could, um, and then we still went through the results, and he was underwhelmed with the problem with with the issue. But we um, so the first one is traditional compression tools don't work. Don't bother trying because it's not going to work. The second one is if somehow you have enough memory on a device and you can run traditional compression tools. The second problem we run into is the data is really not suitable for very good compression. And so if I'm taking, if, if, if I'm sending frequent bursty messages, that's not really the sweet spot for traditional compression software. We have a whole host of compression tools that we use for regular data, and the result is horrible. Uh, the data gets larger, and it consumes much more memory. And then the third piece is if you're not looking at the notion of optimizing protocols as part of this solution, then you've eliminated the opportunity to significantly reduce the, the overall data footprint. Because oftentimes the protocol overhead is two to three times the data overhead. And so if you're not, you have to look at the whole, you take a holistic view of this to be successful. It sounds like behind those technical reasons, there are 
you know, there, there come a raft of, um, I guess, business decisions, right? Reliability and robustness, um, support and maintenance, uh, you know, time to market. You, said, you mentioned a lot of your customers are, are, are kind of come from that DIY background. That's right. You know, what is it that finally kind of the straw on the camel's back that breaks the system that, that brings them to you? Oftentimes, they've spent a bunch of time in terms of engineering resources to develop a product, and ultimately, it doesn't meet their objective, okay. and so they wind up coming to us. The second one is it takes extraordinary a long period of time to go through this. So if they're trying to get something out in the market in a reasonable time, doing it yourself is probably not the best way, especially if not, not starting an IoT. Right. And our customers typically integrate in a matter of days and weeks, not months and years. So we, we had an interesting customer who was doing smart meters in India. And in that particular case, they were sending lots of data. Lots of data is 60 40-byte messages every second. And sure, they could have designed new hardware and they could have done all sorts of things to reduce that amount that they were sending. But they had invested millions of dollars into this hardware that was in the field. And they were just trying to leverage that and get a return on investment. The problem was it was consuming too much data. It didn't make the wireless solution viable. And they came to us and we were able to reduce that data only by a factor of 10. And we did it in a day. A day? One day. Okay. And then we built the library, sent it to them, and they integrated it in another day. And then they tested it. And we had an agreement in place in a week. Okay. So that's the difference is that we try to make some of this heavy lifting much easier, both in time to market, holistic view of the whole solution, and the business model. It's very simple. Most of our clients pay us just a small fraction of, of money on a per-device basis, so it's very painless. And in terms of support, we've got 25 million or so devices in the field today uh, in 20-plus countries. And our support is, you know, if we think about the automotive marketplace, which is pretty stringent in terms of their requirements for support, uh, we've never had an issue in 10 years. Looking forward at Internet of Things, uh, it, particularly at smart buildings, smart cities, smart infrastructure, uh, do you see these customer problems getting easier, getting worse? I mean, in terms of bandwidth available uh, on different, you know, new emerging wireless standards, the cost per bit to transmit, um, and there's a host of different metrics you could use. I guess that's part of the, the complexity behind this is, is you use the word chaos, uh, as we were talking earlier. Uh, you know, where is this going? Well, I think this is an emerging market, and in emerging markets, people come out to solve particular problems initially. And we've talked about this before, Paul, but a year ago, there were probably four or five IoT platforms. Last time I checked, I have a report on my desk that says there's 400. And each of them do a fine job of solving a particular problem. And the issue is no one is looking at this to say, how do we create this level of interoperability uh, in the industry? Take a look at just the home. In the home, you've got... Apple saying, wait, we're going to dominate the home. And Google saying, no, 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 
we're going to dominate the home. And then Samsung saying, don't forget about us. You know, we're going to dominate the home. So there's going to be this attempt to do land grabs. I think the key is to, to focus on that challenge will continue for a while until the market matures. But the notion of taking advantage of whatever network is, is best suited for your application is a nice theory. And they're going to do what they normally do and push their own solution to the marketplace. It's up to the customer to evaluate all of those and say, what's best for us? And you look at some of the new networks, at things like Sigfox and LoRaWAN, and people talking about dollar per year subscription rates. That, you know, that is an unheard of thing that lots of people would like to take advantage of. The challenge is it's a very narrow pipe, has very tight traffic restrictions. You have to really know how to deal with that. So I, I think as the market matures, we will naturally get better at interoperability, but we still need to focus on how to offer simple steps to customers to deploy whatever solution they want over whatever network they want using whatever protocols they want and allow them the ability to tie it together. And ultimately, that's where we're headed. I think we hit all the high topics. So, Tom, it's been a pleasure. So, been talking with Tom Hunt, CEO of Windspring. I'm Paul Teich, Tirius Research. Thanks very much. Paul, thanks for your time.